Welcome to Extraordinary Tales in Extraordinary Times. My guest today is a game changer, a buccaneer and a runner. The first two epithets were acquired along the way. The third, as any runner will tell you, you are born with. He is a runner who is responsible for building one of the world's most celebrated companies now valued at a whopping 44 billion. Back when 44 billion was a lot of money. His journey began in Oregon in the early 60s, where with the help of his old running coach, the legendary Bill Bauman, he began flogging Japanese trainers from the trunk of his car at track meets. From those humble origins, he went on to create perhaps the most iconic brand worldwide with its ubiquitous swoosh logo instantly recognised in every nook and cranny on the planet. Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, Serena Williams, Roger Federer, Colin Kaepernick, just one or two or even five of the global superstars to have donned the brand. I'm delighted to welcome co-founder and chairman emeritus of Nike, Phil Knight. Phil, thank you for agreeing to be uh, my latest victim in the podcast series. Um, Let me just kick off with a general observation. I've always believed that quintessentially the human condition is drawn from a suffusion of influences, family, geography, in your case, Oregon, the Oregon Trail that your predecessors blazed to, to get. They're almost your DNA landscape friendship and education. And it does strike me that all of those influences have had a profound effect on the way you viewed the world and what you went on to do. Well, I don't think there's any question of that. But uh, before I get into that, I must say that in your introduction, you left out one of the greatest wearers of the Nike swoosh, a guy named Seb Coe. That, uh, <laughs> so... Uh, for us, that was a great relationship and a great way to, to get to meet you. Yeah, I think obviously Nike is uh, different because it was formed in Oregon. Uh, uh, Bowerman's influence was enormous. The influence of his father, who was governor of the state of Oregon, was a big influence on him. And uh, all of those things came to bear to give Nike kind of what it, what it, its culture that it has, which allows it to kind of uh, compete the way it does and uh, have an attitude towards uh, its products and its customers and uh, its employees the way it does. Uh, you know, thinking when you were talking about that, it it influences in so many different ways. You know, uh, we're, we're kind of a 56-year overnight sensation, but uh, we... Uh, we, uh, we have 80,000 employees now, and basically during the coronavirus, a lot of them couldn't work. Uh, we didn't furlough or fire anybody in that process because uh, we felt that uh, those were our values and it would pay off in the long run. So you see the influences going bear, back to bear on that decision. And they are. They come from a whole number of different places, as you alluded to. I, I, I'm interested. Let, let's. I, I'm going to explore the concept of father because having read your famous tome, uh, which I have to say, well, I mean, it's it's a it's a stunning read. I, I you know, I'm not just saying that because you're sitting there, uh, and not just my words. You know, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, they're 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 pretty good advocates, but actually, father fathers have played a dramatic role and and there is a synergy here Uh, your father was a seismic influence in your life and your career Uh, Bauman also looked very firmly towards his father and I know in a funny sort of way you almost had him as a father figure 
my father was my coach. And my father actually met Bill Bowman. Uh, and I remember the great Kenny Moore writing a wonderful piece in Sports Illustrating saying that actually when he left Bowman, uh, having had this conversation with my father, Bowman turned around and said, it's the closest thing I've found to a kindred spirit. Uh, and Bowman must have had a profound impact, not just on the fact that he became your business partner, but also on the fact that he had the closest relationship you really have with anybody outside of a marriage, and that's with your coach. Yes, that's absolutely true. That, uh, that uh, Bowerman was a kind of a second father to so many of, of the Oregon runners, and uh, that uh, it probably took most of those runners, including me, years after we'd left for us to really realize that because he was such a taskmaster. But uh, he was... Uh, he was definitely a second father, and maybe even more than that, uh, that uh, some, uh, I don't know, some 30 years after my father died and, uh, and after Bill Barman died, I was going through, there's a Barman section of the University of Oregon Library. And uh, in going through that, uh, I don't know, maybe it was uh, five or six years ago, I found a folder of correspondence, which I never knew of, between my father and Bill Barman. They had known each other in college, and it was quite clear that my father was passing the baton, you know, went off to college to the other Bill, from Bill Knight to Bill Barman, and I never knew any of that. And, uh, and I look back on that, and I, as my first year was really tough at the University of Oregon. He was really hard on me. But looking back on that, I, I feel that he was trying to make me better, and he took it personally that his job to be the second father. And there's no question that I'm better for that today, and I'm grateful for it. But it is uh, was a was a very big surprise to me, and uh, and really quite emotional. Uh, one of the things that I know from athletes uh, at virtually every level, they are slightly compulsive, they are slight loners, uh, and they crave criticism. And they crave criticism for a very simple reason. They just want to be better tomorrow than they were today. They want to be better this time next year than they are at this very moment. And I guess that's the kind of mindset that you take into the creation of a successful business or a sustainable brand. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. That, uh, you know, that uh, Bill Barman, who was my partner and served on Nike's board till, till the day he died, uh, he always said at any of the meetings, and it was really helpful, Nike makes the worst shoes in the world except for everybody else. And that was sort of the way we looked at it. And I think that was very helpful. But, but let me tell you something that you don't know, that, uh, that I just, uh, uh, Jim Bailey, who ran the first sub four-minute mile and was a teammate of mine, that uh, he loved Barman. And, uh, but he said, and uh, he, he passed away uh, the last couple months at age 90. And they get, had an interview with him when he was age 89. And he said, yes, I ran the first sub four minute mile in the United States. But he says, if we'd have had, if I'd had a coach that was as scientific as Seb Coe's coach, he said, I'd have run much faster. <laughs> well, I, I wish my father was still around to be able to pass that on to him. But it was extraordinary. If, if the compliment was paid from Bill Bauman to my father, my father also came back from his visit to, uh, or his time he spent with, with, with Bauman. I think they were both coaching or, or at a, a seminar in the United States. And my father also said that he'd found the closest thing 
that he'd that he'd encompassed or encountered in coaching they were absolutely hewn from the same rock both with yes. a forensic background and just you know a, an obsession with detail yep yep I, I, everything I know about your father, that's absolutely true. Look, you, you actually raised the issue, which I wanted to, to pick up, and, and it's a good one. You were talking about the COVID-19, the pandemic, that, you know, you were very proud that you've not furloughed anybody, that you've kept the business uh, afloat. And look, I'm, I'm not trying to carbon date you, but, you know, you talked about the 56-year <laughs> year overnight sensation. But look, you know, the genesis of any business, great business, is that you go through difficult times. You know, you've had some tough economic times. You've had some pretty tough financial times. The, You know, you've had some contractual arguments along the way. You know, you've fought off the American selling price. You you, you fought off a, a, a coup from Japan. Is the COVID-19 the toughest period that you've had to navigate the business through? It's it's different, and it's certainly as tough as any of them. It's it's entirely different because we sit here today. You know, in the United States, it started in late February, and uh, we sit here in late July, and we still don't know what it is. That uh, that uh, nobody really in the United States that I can see, including the greatest scientific minds, really has their arms around the understanding of what this is and how long it's going to last. Uh, you know, that uh, I know in February, late February, they said, well, if we can just get this disease to level off, then it'll turn down and things will get better. And we did get the disease to level off and it did turn down. And now it's spiked back up again. And every, a lot of people say, well, we uh, eased up too early. We took the, the, uh, the uh, restrictions off too early. And that seems to be true in Texas and Florida, but some of the most restrictive states California, Oregon, and Michigan, they're having big spikes too. So nobody, nobody really knows. And, and the scientific community says masks don't matter, then masks do matter, then cloth masks don't matter. It's, uh, it's a lot of conflicting advice, and I, I'm not being critical. They just don't understand what it is. And, and I know, uh, you know the governor of Oregon was criticized and said, well, if she doesn't get this right, she really needs to get it right uh, because it's very important on when to open up and when not to open up. Well, they don't have enough information. Nobody can get it right. All you can do is get it as close as you can. And so as we sit here today and say, is this the toughest uh, uh, problem you've ever had? It, we're still partway through it. And uh, it's certainly uh, one of the very, very toughest. And uh, uh, we don't know how this ends. The, the good news is uh, that uh, both in England and the United States, they're making great progress on a vaccine, and that appears to be the great hope. But right now, we're sitting in, in the middle of a pandemic that uh, honestly doesn't look to me like anybody really understands. The, the manifestation in our sector, i.e. sport, is very simple. We've just lost sport. You know, it's, it's, yes. you know we're only now just beginning, and, and even... Even the sports that were up and running uh, a few weeks ago uh, are now again in, in lockdown. What, what is the most profound impact that this has had, though, on, on the business, on your business? Well, that uh, our last quarter, which is, uh, you know, May 31, and we reported uh, the last week in June, 
uh, Wall Street expected us to have a profit of $130 million, and we had a loss of $790 million. So uh, that's a pretty big difference. Uh, you know, it, it hammered us uh, in that quarter. Now we're feeling that we're coming back a little bit now, but uh, it really hammered us. Uh, and uh, I don't know that it's over, but it seems to be, uh, as far as uh, sales, it seems to be uh, certainly doing better than what we did in, in our what was our fourth quarter. Um, the, the kind of, but you see a lot of encouraging things along the way that... Uh, in the West Coast here, there have been a whole bunch of pop-up track meets that uh, they've got, uh, they, they can't have a crowd and they don't want to draw a crowd. So they just get to, teams get together and say, let's have a limited meet in some obscure location that they don't even announce until it's over. And there have been some really brilliant fast times uh, running these pop-up track meets. And uh, to me, it's very encouraging that the sport has, uh, has that much life and energy in it. I, I'm glad you say that. I've been bowled over by the ingenuity and the creativity. You know, we've, we've, we've witnessed the ultimate garden challenge where we've had three pole vaulters in different parts of the world <laughs> jump, jumping in their own back garden. We, we did the same thing with the, uh, with the multi-eventers and... You know, it, it's it's been make and mend, but I actually think in a funny sort of way, both the technology that's brought us together, that brings us together today, and the ingenuity has has been really, you know, quite totemic of, of the strength of the sport. I'm interested in the business. Are there things that you have had to do and restructure because of the pandemic that you see as potentially permanent features going forward? Well, I think that uh, for us in our U.S. market, uh, Nike in February had 10,000 retail accounts across the country. And the next month, almost all of them closed. And uh, I would expect, while they're starting to reopen now, and a lot of them have reopened, there will probably be at least 3,000 of them that never reopen. Uh, so that's a big change. And, of course, the way we do our stores and the way our own stores and the way uh, our uh, our customers, our, our retail stores that we sell to, that they're having to uh, socially distance and, and demand people wear masks and their own employees wear masks and you have to clean up all the time and there's Purell around every corner and uh, it's just a different way of doing things. The same thing in, in our home office that uh, everybody wears a mask, uh, one person to an elevator. It's just, uh, a, you know, an adjustment that uh, we've had to make and... Uh, as I say, that uh, there's going to be, uh, you know, kind of uh, a complete change. I mean, those 3,000 stores that will probably never reopen, it's going to change the whole face of business. And, uh, you know, kind of we won't really know the whole impact until uh, the smoke is cleared, and which I think for me that means until we get a vaccine. Uh, okay. You've talked about the, the business. What, what do you think the changes are going to be long-term for sport? I mean, clearly, we don't want to have sport played behind closed doors all the time. Uh, that's just, you know, that loses its emotional appeal. It loses its community cohesion. But do you see some profound changes in the way sport will be delivered as a, as a result of this if we are, for the foreseeable future, going to be dealing with such uncertainties? Well, I think, obviously, during this period where uh, the pandemic is still raging, that uh, how sport is delivered uh, is uh, changed enormously. Uh, golf has started to play, but they're playing with no 
crowds. Uh, as somebody pointed out, uh, that's got to be the first time in his life that Tiger Woods has uh, pulled a, a ball out of a cup and there's been no cheer. There's just nobody there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that the, uh, it doesn't look very good for the college football season in the United States that even the professional season is, is somewhat in doubt. And then leads into, will you really have a college basketball season? Uh, and uh, what really concerns me, are we going to have an Olympic Games? Now, having said that, I'm optimistic about the latter because I do think this vaccine is coming. And I do think when we get the vaccine, sport will not only come back to normal, but will be bigger than ever because there's a huge appetite for some kind of sport. And uh, so when it finally returns, it will be more popular than ever, in my opinion. Uh, let, let, me go, let me go back to you, if I may. I, I know you're never that fond of talking about yourself, but I'm, I'm going to twist and, and turn here. I read a quote from you that I found really interesting. And it was that, and I, I just, I've got it here in front of me. It wasn't so much that I wanted to win. It was more that I simply didn't want to lose. What is the bigger motivation there? Well... For me, it was just explained in that in that quote, and uh, there, I mean, I don't know. A lot of a lot of great athletes have a burning desire to win. I think it's probably true of Michael Jordan, although they also hate to lose, and and I did. I it, it, losing really bothered me. Uh, I mean, it ate at me, uh, and I would guess. I'd be more interested, I think your audience would be more interested in your attitude towards that because uh, you, you didn't lose very much, but I'm sure that if you ever, when you did occasionally, it hurt a lot. And uh, and so uh, what was your greater motivation? I, I hated losing. I absolutely hated losing. Uh, and look, I, I worked with a coach that didn't rationalize defeat, but sometimes there were explicable reasons why what you planned hadn't come off, and that wasn't really a reason to turn for the, you know, turn back down the hill and and and, and not keep, you know, scrabbling your way over there. But it's a really good question. Um, I think it was for me. It was always the fear of losing, not from a personal point of view, but I think it is the recognition that you are surrounded by so many people, your coaches, in your case, Bill Baum and my coach, my father, they dedicate pretty much all their waking hours and probably a lot of their sleeping hours to, to helping you. And it's it's not so much that you haven't performed as well as you think you should have done. It's just, I always think it's that awful feeling that you've let other people down around you that have created that sort of ecosystem for your success. So it is a fear of losing, but it was... My my first instinct after winning was never about me. It was always, oh, thank God I haven't let those people down that have dedicated, you know, unpaid so many hours to what I've done. So in a way for me, it was the fear of losing, but it wasn't a personal thing. It was much more about other people. I, I, I ran a lap of honour in LA, in, the, in Moscow, after having won the 1,500 metres. The first 200 metres of it, was I'm out of here. I've, this is too much. There's too much pressure. And by the time I got to the 200 meter mark, I'm actually thinking about what I need to do to get to LA four years later. So we're all we're all crazy. But I guess for me, it was more the fear of losing and just not wanting to feel like that. The, the following day, you woke up. I don't know whether that helps. Well, I'll tell it another way that uh, winning a race 
you had a glow for, or for me, which wasn't that let off. But winning, winning a race, you had a glow for an hour. Losing a race hurt for a week. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I, I think that's a, that's a, that, that probably sums it up better than I've, I've, I've been able to articulate it. Your ambition, I was interested because you're a bit of a renaissance man. Uh, you know, in, in, in one of the chapters of the book, I mean, within a, literally a couple of paragraphs, you're referring to Dante, you're referring to Joyce, Fitzgerald, Shakespeare, Hemingway. Your ambition was either to be a great novelist or a great journalist, and ultimately you would have much preferred to be in a great runner. Yeah, true statement. And, and do you feel, did you feel that running defined you in a way that allowed you to see other things in perspective? I, look, you know, I, I never think that you choose your sport. I'm a great believer that your sport chooses you. They sort of, it, it, lands, it lands on certain types of mentalities. Yes, you need the, the machinery and Bill would talk about, you know, ATP systems and, you know, and biomechanics and, and all the other things. But by and large, you end up with the sport that chooses you. I'm not sure it's the other way around. Were you always born to be a runner? Oh, no, that... Uh... I thought I was going to be a major league baseball player and, okay. and uh, that uh, my high school uh, didn't have a freshman team when I went there. So you had to make the, the, uh, you had to make the sophomore freshman team and I was the last guy cut. And uh, so I was cut from the baseball team, which uh, there was one I really felt because we'd spent a lot of summers playing the equivalent of little league baseball and the family would forego vacations to come watch me play. And then I got cut from the team. That was a killer. And uh, my mother said, I'm tired after about a week of that. She said, I'm tired of watching you uh, mope around this house, either go out for track or get a paper route. And I said, well, I don't want to get a paper route. <laughs> so I went out for track and found out I could beat somebody at it. And all of a sudden I was there. And, uh, and, and I think there's no question that uh, it had a big impact, not well, obviously from my association with shoes, but in terms of my attitude towards the business and competition, I know Barman would often say, I'm not a track coach. I'm a professor of competitive response. And uh, that was the way uh, he sort of looked at things. And, uh, and it, those were lessons, as I say, that all of us, that sometimes it took years after we'd left, but all of us realized that uh, what he meant by that. I'm, I'm fascinated uh, in, uh, we'll, we'll leave the running element because just, for, just in a moment, but do you actually think runners see the world in a different way? Yeah, I do. I think it's one, it's, uh, you're out there all by yourself and uh, it's not really a team sport and uh, that uh, it teaches you competitive responses among other things and, and all the things that are, I mean, there's no distance runner that got to be any good and didn't have to work like hell. So that was, those are lessons and, uh, and then you can work like hell and get beat. I mean, it, uh, that, uh, it, you don't get all those feelings, uh, especially as in of an individual sport like you do in, in, in particularly in running. Uh, let me roll the uh, spool forward to the 90s because the, the, the business is, is well established. You've been through some really challenging times, the arguments and, and contractual relationships with Onit Suter. Uh, you've sort of grown, but it's been, it's been painful and, and you chronicle really interestingly the relationship you had with the banks. 
And I've got a quote here that is from the Harvard Business Review, and I'm, I'm really interested in your interpretation of this. Uh, and I quote, initially, uh, you consider yourself a product orientated business, in other words, emphasizing manufacturing. Uh, and from a marketing perspective, and again, I quote, getting shoes out there on the athletes was about the extent of it, although you were a marketing uh, major. Uh, you then eventually understood uh, the importance of marketing and, and Nike transitioned into a, a marketing oriented company. Tell me a little bit about that transitional thinking in the genesis of the business. Well, uh, we started out thinking, obviously, that uh, we, we almost consider ourselves a production company in the sense that, you know, making the right shoe was important. And we thought it was, wasn't kind of the most important thing, it was the only thing. And it worked very well for us at first, uh, at clear up into the, uh, you know, from uh, the late 60s into the, into the early 80s. And uh, we really uh, didn't care so much what the shoe looked like as long as it performed. And we didn't advertise uh, except occasionally in the Runner's World magazine or something like that. And along came Reebok and just beat our brains out. And it drove us crazy because we thought their shoes were inferior, but uh, they looked really good and they appealed to a certain segment, which was women. And uh, that our well, one. And it shoes, sort of tied in with the dance. It was the sort yes, of dance. Yes, it did. Sort of it did. It did. But also, it, it played to one of our great weaknesses: with a woman's shoe was just a men's shoe made pink, and uh, so that uh, we uh, had to reassess. And so uh, that we came to the conclusion that really that uh, were marketing is important, and that we're a marketing company, and the most important marketing weapon we have is the product. So the product is still the key, but now it's 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 not just build a better mousetrap and the world will beat a path to your door. It's build a better mousetrap and market, 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 and the world will beat a tra tra path to your door. And so that's the way we kind of transitioned, and uh, we rebounded and uh, and beat back Reebok and have gone on to to um, to be number one. And uh, that, uh, but. Uh, the interesting thing on, on the marketing, though, is it, it's changed so much. I mean, uh, for us, uh, you know, the marketing part of it was a lot of television ads, which were very, very successful with Michael Jordan and, and some of the ads that we did that way. Um, but now it, with the Internet, that uh, there's so many different facets than ways to get to the consumer and to a specialized consumer that uh, nobody really has got their arms around that successfully right now. It's really, in, that marketing is really in transition and uh, we're working at it hard, but I wouldn't say we have any answers. You referred to Michael Jordan, but you started to build uh, a whole raft of ambassadorial relationships uh, and that was key in terms of growing the business. I mean, how did you in the early days manage to persuade some of the bigger names to, to take such a leap of faith to a business that didn't have the cachet at the time of the Adidas's and the Reeboks? Well, uh, you know, in the early years that uh, we had to kind of find people that uh, either were kind of renegades, such as the person uh, interviewing me right now, and uh, that, uh, or, or that, you know, that uh, it wasn't, uh, the endorsements w weren't as widespread back in those days as they are now. So we had to find the, if we couldn't get the best people, uh, I'm talking particularly about basketball, we'll get the second best people. 
And, uh, and then uh, finally we got a best person in Michael Jordan, but uh, we chipped away at it. And so we got a decent reputation as far as quality and innovation. And then the great endorsements became much easier to, to follow. I think most of us in lockdown, uh, I, you've probably seen it a hundred times, but for, for us in the UK, one of the most popularly watched um, television documentaries was Netflix's uh, Last Dance. Uh, it was probably the most watched documentary uh, during lockdown. We've talked about him, but just how important was Michael Jordan to the genesis of the business and particularly uh, just building the, the, the shoes around him? Well, he was huge that, uh, you know, uh, we had good scouting reports that he was going to be a great player, but nobody could imagine that he'd be as great as he was. And, and we started right off uh, making a special shoe, which was, uh, uh, had a lot of different colors in it, and there weren't any basketball shoes with all those colors in it. So uh, it was a stroke of luck, really, that David Stern, who was commissioner of the NBA at the time, banned the shoe because it had too many colors. Well, you can't get any better publicity than that. Every kid wanted the banned shoe. You'd pay for that kind yeah, of Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, David Stearns. Um, but uh, yeah, and uh, the remarkable thing is, is that uh, one, the advertising really clicked, that Wyden and Kennedy did a fabulous job, and, and, and Michael was not only uh, just a great player, but he was a great personality, and uh, it impacted the business a lot. What's really unique about it is that, that uh, the Jordan, the Air Jordan transferred into Brand Jordan after he retired. And uh, in his last game that he played, uh, the Jordan, Jordan shoes and Jordan apparel were selling about $800 million a year, which is very good. So now that he's been retired, uh, they were selling $3.5 billion a year. And uh, as I said, could you imagine how much we would have sold if he had never played? That, uh, <laughs> but uh, no, but he, and that's, uh, you know, about 10% of our sales. So it's, it's a huge impact. And it's uh, obviously an impact at the very highest level of sport. And, and it's kind of a, a meshing of sport and fashion. And uh, it's been a big part of, uh, of the reason Nike's been successful. And, I, and I, let me add this. I thought the documentary was sensational, that it really captured who he was and the true story, which was one of the reasons it was so widely watched, because it was honest. But, uh, but also, it was a huge success, unbelievable a success that surprised everybody in the United States. And that plays to my point. There's just a, such a hunger, such a hunger worldwide for sport that that got bigger play than it would have normally, I think. Let me jump from that to something that I, I do actually feel has a sort of a natural segue. Uh, we've all been moved by the passionate uh, anti-racism movement that began uh, in your country uh, and then gripped the rest of the world. But actually Nike has for many years been at the forefront of many campaigns that spring from the many hotspots, the, the, what I would describe as the moral hotspots, the, the, the big crossroads. Uh, I think back to uh, the poster that ran in the 70s uh, for Billie Jean King and, you know, a, a, an apple for the teacher, which just actually broke the advertising mold and, and paved the way for some equity that I don't think any of us actually saw coming at the time. How important is it for 
a company, uh, a, a, a big company like Nike to be on the front line of, of social impact and higher purpose? Well, I think that uh, it's important for any company in the year 2020 to take stands on certain issues that are that go to the core of who it is and what its business is. I don't think Nike or any company should jump out on every political or issue that comes in front of it. But there are some issues that uh, really uh, impact us at our core. And uh, obviously, the African-American athlete is, uh, is that core. And uh, so uh, we feel we have to respond to those issues. And uh, so we try to do it in a way that's most honest and reflects who we are. And so when an issue comes up like that, that's what we do. I know that um, related to the, uh, the, the Black Lives Matter uh, issue, that um, I had a conversation uh, two years ago with uh, LeBron James. It was just an informal thing after we, I had an appearance in front of the NBA owners and he was there. He's not an owner, but obviously he's one of their key people. And, and we went to dinner with uh, several other people afterwards. And I had two uh, grandsons that were just about ready to get their driver's license, which really made me nervous because they're both great kids, but they're real drifty. And I was afraid to get their driver's license, they'll drive through a stop sign without paying attention, a red light, uh, changing lanes without looking. I had lots of things I worried about them all the time. And at that dinner, uh, LeBron James, who's not a complainer at all, he said, you know, my son is almost 16, he's gonna get a driver's license. And I'm terrified he's going to get shot by a cop. And I'm going, oh, my God. I said, if I had to, that isn't even in the top 50 of my worries. And I, said, uh, and I said, if I had to worry about that, it would drive me crazy. And so I really, it really hit home about uh, that as an issue. And, and I think uh, that's one of the reasons that we t- took the stand that we did. You, uh, Nike's just recently updated its policy on uh, mater- its maternity policy for, for female athletes. Were, there, were these some of the learnings that you've taken from recent events as well about remaining authentic and remaining true to name and to brand? Absolutely. And it was obviously an acknowledgement that we made a big mistake. I mean, obviously, the first uh, few athletes that we signed were, were male athletes. And, uh, that, uh, and it goes back to the early days of, of basically track and field. When I went to the University of Oregon, there was no women's track team at Oregon. And it wasn't for a, you know, a decade or two afterwards. So uh, the people that we signed uh, were men. And so when we started signing women, which was, uh, you know, not, I mean, like it, it was a year or two later, but we just used the man's contract and, uh, you know, put the woman's name in it. And it didn't make any acknowledgement to pregnancy or some of those things. And it really didn't hit home. So it was, an, it was an oversight on our part, which was really brought home uh, here within the last uh a uh, year, a couple of years, and so we uh, we adjusted the contracts for maternity leave, and uh, which we should have done a long time ago. So the rule here is um, preach internally what you preach externally. Should be absolutely. No, I think that's a key part of marketing. You can't fool the public into believing that you're something that you're not. Yeah, um, I'm already taken up too much of your time. Um, and I'm over my allocated time with you. Um, let me just pick up on, on a couple of things. The, the 24-year-old, 25-year-old that set off to Japan uh, to effectively start the business with no business behind you, 
Um, and in a way, the rest is history. And I'm going to try and put a few more royalties your way because if you really want the history, you'll go out and buy, whoever's listening to this will go out and buy Shoe Dog. I cannot, I, I cannot extol its virtues high enough. What advice would you give now uh, to your 24-year-old self that set off on that journey? Uh, what are the things, if the, you had one thing you would, you would do differently over that 56-year overnight sensation, what is it? Well, uh, there's a whole bunch of things, I think, that, uh, <laughs> that um, I look back at, at lots of mistakes. But uh, if you want to start with uh, what mistake did you make on that first trip, um, when I went into uh, Anitsuka to try and, and have them sell shoes in the United States and that I was their man to, uh, to sell them, I... Um, I oversold what I was. I, uh, I I led them to believe I had a business that was up and running, and uh, and if I had it to do over, I would have been completely honest. I said, "I'm starting from scratch, but I'm a graduate of Stanford Business School, and I'm your man to do the job." It might have made for a better long-term relationship, but uh, it all worked out okay. But uh, I, I would have uh, had my sales pitch a little more honest, if you will. Okay. What keeps you awake at night? Oh, I think, you know, you always worry about the business. Uh, we're, uh, you know, we're selling $40, $40 billion worth of uh, uh, shoes and clothes a year. And, uh, you know, the next job is to try to get to 80 over the next, uh, you know, five or six years. And uh, so it gets down to uh, the ultimate thing is always, even when we're uh, four or five people or even when we're 80,000 people, it's the people themselves and how to get them trained and, and educated and inculcated with the right culture. Those things are always the, the most important thing. And those are the things I worry about the most. And it's those resilient relationships that, of course, keep businesses due north during the challenges that we've confronted around COVID-19, I guess. Done right. That's absolutely true. But uh, we've got a lot of warts that we try to hide from the public and uh, we try to overcome the mistakes and, and get things right. But we're aware of our weaknesses. I'm going to leave you with your own words. Uh, and apart from thanking you, Phil, for taking the time today, um, I just scribbled them down. It all worked out OK. I think that's probably the great American understatement. Thank you for being my guest today. I'll just say this. I wouldn't trade places with anybody. It's been a, it's been a ball. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Extraordinary Tales in Extraordinary Times, brought to you by CSM 